Hello and welcome to episode number 251 of the Armin Show podcast. Who do we have on this episode? We have Sir Peter Gluckman, author of Ingenious, The Unintended Consequences of Human Innovation. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Armin. It is great to have you on here. I like the book from the first, I always like one word titles like Ingenious. They really are punchy and then they, they, they speak to me. Now, there's a lot to uncover. You handle a lot of things. I noticed that when I was looking at what you do, you cover many different uh, aspects. You work with many different groups. So the first question I would ask would be, how, did you, how would you describe how you ended up at where you currently are? Well, I started my life as a pediatrician, actually, mm -hmm. many years ago. And early on, I became a developmental physiologist, focusing on how the fetus develops, how children grow from a biological perspective. And that led us into a lot of research relating what happens early in life to what happens later in life. And that, in turn, led me to, into evolutionary biology. And I became more of a, I actually wrote or well, co-authored the first textbook of evolutionary biology applied to medicine. And then I had another, a number of other roles. I've been the chief science advisor to the prime minister of New Zealand for a decade. I've set up a medical research institute. I've been dean of a medical school. So I've had many different roles. I'm chair of the International Network of Government Science Advice. I'm president-elect of the International Science Council. So I have a lot of roles across the diverse aspects of both natural and social sciences. But my own particular interest, I guess, is on how evolution, human biology, development all come together and how they interact with the world that we are changing. This makes sense. It's nice that you get to see it from view of a pediatrician and maybe working with younger people and then development across life and then looking at life in a broader scale like evolutionary biologists now you just mentioned that you had that's one of the most interesting things to me you uh worked for the prime minister of new zealand as chief science advisor what were some things you brought to the table in that regard during that period of time well i think what i learned is the, the complexity of policy making is much more than what many scientists think it is. Just because science thinks that we sh the, the science says A causes B doesn't necessarily mean that the policy community sees it the same way. And they have many other things to take into account beyond the knowledge itself. And I think that what I became is what I would call more of a knowledge broker. Like you need an interpreter at the UN to between say Chinese and Russian, then the same thing is true between science and policy. You need people who've got the ability to talk both ways. And I had many different roles. I had to deal with issues of earthquakes on one hand and major problems associated with that through to dealing with issues of, of chemicals in the environment, which might be toxic through to issues like the adolescent transition. What do we know about how in the transition from being a child to being an adult and what that means in terms of mental health, what that means in terms of how governments need, because we live in New Zealand, we should say in a, in a country that has a strong social safety net, 
but also as a free market economy. So how do you actually manage young people in these complex environments? Mm -hmm. One thing that came to mind is that you were part of a group that focused on childhood obesity. This is a big thing, actually. I think I saw it earlier today or yesterday that 42% of adults in the United States are now obese, according to the CDC. How I'd also noticed that in your books, the past books were a little bit more focused on fitness, diet, and or exercise, and now transition to this book, which we'll get to later. But uh, what made you focus on obesity and how relevant is it to a society's well-being? Well, it comes from our science. The, the 40 years or so I've spent in experimental physiology and clinical science, where we've learned so much about how what happens before birth and then the period around birth and an infancy determines whether a child will become obese or not to a large extent. And so I was writing a lot of science about that. We came into discussion with Dr. Margaret Chan, who was then the Director General of the World Health Organization. And she decided that it was a sufficiently important issue to set up a commission to look at childhood obesity. I ended up being co-chair of that commission for three years. We wrote a report which looked at the many, many aspects of it, uh, what governments might do about it. Unfortunately, in the way these things work, the report might be very good, but its translation into actual practice around the world has been rather weak. And that's understandable in some other ways. But, but uh, you know, the biology is clear. Children who have a poor start to life either because of for various reasons, including maternal nutrition, maternal stress, uh, not being breastfed, um, etc., are more likely to become obese in this obesogenic environment. They're more sensitive to the environment than children who've had a good start to life. Equally, children and mothers who've had diabetes during pregnancy um, have more fat cells. And if you have more fat cells, it's like uh, having a bigger gas tank. You'll put more gas into the tank and you'll put more fat into more cells if you have more cells. And so what we're seeing around the world is this massive increase in the number of women who have diabetes during pregnancy and their children are more likely to get obese and themselves become diabetic as they get older. So I have a laboratory in Singapore and we now know that in Singapore, 25 to 30% of Chinese, of women of Chinese or Indian origin are likely to get diabetes during pregnancy. In China, there's well over 150 million people with type 2 diabetes. Same in India. These are, and in my part of the world where I live, in, in New Zealand, of course, we have the Polynesian and Maori people who are very much at risk of very high levels of obesity and diabetes. One thing that comes to mind in this category is usually there's a chunk of the populace that is good on a topic and then there's a, a chunk that is let's say obese in this case yesterday i was at a talk about elections and how you can focus on the people who are voting but then there's like 40 percent of people let's say in the u.s or some parts that just they don't vote so have you noticed more often that it's worthwhile to focus on those that are not obese and have that spread to those who are let's say obese or those who are voting and have it spread to those who aren't? Or is it worth 
trying to tackle those who are obese or not voting or the ones who are not I taking part. The first thing we need to say about obesity mm -hmm. is that with obesity, obesity can be covert, not obvious, because the obesity that hurts you is the obesity inside you, not what's under your skin. It's actually the fat around your kidneys, the fat in your liver, the fat in your omentum, the fat around your heart. That's the fat that is, if you like, toxic. And therefore, for many people in many parts of the world, they may look superficially okay. But when you scan them, you can see that there's a lot of, of fat in the wrong places. So for example, in Singapore, we discovered using imaging techniques that even at the age of four and a half, many of these children have excess amounts of fat in their muscle, even though they, uh, they don't look fat and they don't have a lot of fat under their skin. They're not looking obese to, their, to the naked eye. And so that, that's the first point to make. The second point is the one that you make is a very important scientific point. We should always look, when we're looking at anything, whether it's looking at psychological resilience or looking not just at people who get disease, but the people who are resilient in the same circumstances. And so as much, for example, if we look at, say, something like maternal mental health during pregnancy, it's actually the women who are psychologically resilient in pregnancy that have the better outcomes. It's not so much as it's that the women are psychologically uh, uh, less than optimal during pregnancy, it's being resilient that leads to better outcomes. So the questions become what leads to resilience rather than what leads to the stress, because every pregnancy we know is a stressful environment for the woman. She's in different circumstances, particularly in the Western world. This is true. I've had a lot of uh, focus on resiliency in general. I've looked at a, a few key traits that I identify with. One of them is resiliency. Just on that topic, what would you say helps build resiliency in a person? Just a broad topic there. Quality early childhood experience. We know that the basic skills of emotional resilience and psychological resilience develop in the first few years of life. We know a lot about that. We know that, you know, there are good studies now from some of our colleagues that show by two to four years of age, you can start to identify children are going to have less than optimal pathways through life in terms of their emotional and emotional progression. And therefore, focusing on quality and early experience between parent and child, early quality, early childhood uh, education and childcare, uh, socialization skills are far more important than cognitive skills in that period. I worry that we spend too much time in early childhood education focused on whether the child can read, whether they can count rather than whether they can socialize and interact with each other in a in constructive way and develop a theory of mind and so forth. We know that's a critical period. And it's like building a house. If you don't make the foundation strong enough, then if there's a little earthquake, your house will be in damage. If you have strong foundations, then your house will withstand a much stronger earthquake. And similarly, if we don't develop psychological resilience, in those first few years of life, then when we have the inevitable stresses of adolescence, the inevitable stresses of moving from adolescence to adulthood, the inevitable stresses that we all face in our lives, 
then we'll be less resilient. And people like James Heckman, the Nobel laureate, and many others, uh, our own work included, Richie Poulton and Dunedin, they've all shown that if we don't have that initial foundations of psychological resilience right, we're less likely to complete high school, we're more likely to use uh, drugs and alcohol inappropriately. We're more likely to be in contact with the, the justice system in ways we don't want to be in contact with the justice system. We're less likely to, to have stable earnings and we're less likely to have stable relationships. Now, if, for, I think for everybody in the world, those are the things that parents want their children to have. They want them to have a good psychological life and we know that that requires psychological resilience developing early in life. And, you know, a large part of our book, this new book we've written, is about the fact that we're facing change at a rate faster than the world has ever seen before. And therefore, psychological resilience will be a key weapon in maintaining our ability to thrive in the world we're now facing. This makes sense. I look heavily at resilience because I feel like it's a big separator along with self-esteem of people uh, versus others. Now, as far as your book, you co-wrote it with Mark Hansen, as you mentioned, along with many books you have written. What is it that uh, as a partnership, like one of you has brought to the table versus the other one along the years? Well, you'd have to ask Mark that question as well, I suspect. <laughs> but, but Mark and I had been colleagues for... 30 years, even though we're in opposite parts of the world. Mm. We could not be further away. He lives near Southampton. I live in Auckland, New Zealand, 12,000 miles apart. We've been in the same space. In other words, we both come from the developmental physiology, developmental child health perspective, obstetric pediatric perspective. But we have slightly different orientations. He also has an educational perspective he originally trained as a teacher, so he's got other, other skills I don't have. He would claim he's a better writer than I am. Uh, we, we've just intellectually sparred in a very constructive way for 25, 30 years. We started off, I guess, as competitors in science uh, in, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And collaboration is more fun than competition. And we became agreed to work together from about, I was going to say, the mid-1990s. We've written perhaps 150 scientific papers together. We've uh, uh, um, uh, written a number of books, both popular books and textbooks together. Uh, and we talk most weeks. And people ask how we write when we're 12,000 miles apart. Well, that's an interesting exercise. What we actually do is we tend to find three or four days in our diary every few months, get together and sit on opposite sides of the table and work together to do that initial forming of what we're writing, debate. Uh, we never split the book in parts. We never say, you write that chapter, you write that chapter. What, what we try and do is write together. So. I'll be sitting on one side of the table. We'll talk for a few minutes and I'll write a few paragraphs. He'll write a few paragraphs that might flow on. To, then we'll swap. And by the end of the day, we can't remember who started writing any one bit. Uh, and then obviously when we get to the, 
to the tidying up because you can imagine as well, any book, the first draft is always a mess. The second draft you have to cut and paste and reorganize and you find you've used the same story five times and you can only use it once. And then he would demand, he's, he has the final say because his, his English is more proper than my English. <laughs> I would debate that, but he, he, he would say that. That's pretty funny. That makes sense. When I saw his name first, I thought he might be Robin Hansen, who wrote The Elephant in the Brain, who I've interviewed before, but it was a different Hansen. Do you know Robin Hansen, by the way? No, I don't. No, I know his work, but I don't know him. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah, he wrote The Elephant in the Brain about hidden motives, which is not that far away from the things that oh. we didn't want to happen as unintended consequences. Correct. One thing, actually, to follow up on that uh, collaboration, how quickly did you know that you two would work together well for a long time? Oh, it's difficult. We had actually written a scientific paper together as early as 1983. We had first met, I guess, about 1980. I thought he was a pompous such and such, and he probably thought I was a, a, a pompous such and such too. But then his wife came to New Zealand on a sabbatical to study a famous New Zealand author. His wife is a famous literature, liter, professor of literature in England. And we came, we said, well, you're here. Why don't you come and work in our lab together for a while? We had an interesting time. Then we swapped research fellows. I sent him a postdoc to work with him and one of his postdocs came here. And then it was really in the middle 90s. We could see that we really did think in a compatible way, even though we had different skills and brought it together. And then we started writing seriously from 2001 onwards together. So it's about is, 20 years now we've been working in this way. This is great. That's nice. It's good to see the path as it developed. Now, from the book, you early on start off with adaptation to things that happen uh, or looking at animals, termites, any sort of animal and how they've adapted to reality and adjusted. How much value do you believe there is in seeing all the solutions to any of our issues in what's already been solved by plants or animals or other organisms? I'm not sure you find solutions because every species is different. But I think, you know, I still am a great believer that evolution and evolutionary thinking is a unifying argument for biology. And humans are animals living within changing environments. And therefore, to the extent we can learn from what other species have done in changing environments, it gives us some instruction to actually think conceptually about the problems but at the end of the day we need to realize that we are a very generalist species living in very different environments but what we've done is we've been unlike other species which only you know when the environment changes other species have got relatively limited ways of, of managing it they can either not manage it and they go extinct or they can move to an environment that's more suitable and we're seeing that now with climate change, for instance, as the ocean is warming, fishes from the are moving, fish stocks are moving in their distribution in the ocean from warmer to from more tropical to more southern or more northern uh, climes. Uh, or you create defenses, and that's what termites and beavers have done, as they've created mechanisms to withstand changes in the environment. But humans are different. We keep on modifying our environments all the time. 
And that, that's what the book's about. Mm -hmm. We have that added ability. Long live our prefrontal cortex and extended brain capacity. So well, maybe, maybe there's a point at which the issue is, does it turn back on us? That's true. I like that. That's the concept behind the book. It's like a next step that I noticed that in the book progression that you wrote, I think you got to this book because you're like, wait a minute. Uh, we're not looking at the after effects of what we do as a people. Well, I mean, up to now, why would we? I mean, most impacts that humans had on the environment, let's say five, 10, 2000 years ago, even 500 years ago were local. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they might clear a clearing in the forest for agriculture or, or whatever. But since, particularly since the industrial, the impacts of humans are no longer local. So, you know, the, the, we are now facing global impacts from things that have been, that happen not necessarily in our backyard. So for example, people in, in Africa have had, did not create the industrial revolution, but the impacts of climate change largely come from the technologies that first started emerging from the industrial revolution through all the other technological, technological developments that followed. So we're in a different world now to 200 years ago, to, to 200, 500 years ago. The other thing is, of course, that, so you wouldn't expect somebody from, who was inventing uh, the internal combustion engine 150 years ago to be thinking about the consequences of global warming. But what we now have to think a lot more about as technologies move so quickly and are so pervasive and have their impact so immediately, we need to be more conscious of how we think about technological development in this world. And that's really the point of the book. I believe Silicon Valley and other large entities on the planet are starting to look at, wait a minute, we produce things. Where do these things go? We have to produce them such that they don't end up damaging us. Well, later. I mean, there's a debate about what Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs really do want. I mean, you have some very libertarian uh, magnates there and you have some people that are very socially conscious and, you know, they, they may project one image, but what are they really thinking in, uh, behind the scenes? Who knows? But I mean, the fact is, if we take the internet revolution, it's been fantastic in terms of being able to communicate. I mean, look at what we're doing now. You couldn't have done that 30 years ago. Uh, it would have been a long, slow, complicated process of you and me. We can get information in ways we couldn't get before. I could look you up in two minutes on the net and look, look at some of your previous podcasts, which are very good, by the way. Thank you. Uh, but, but, uh, um, uh, but at the same time, it's brought the downsides of the dark net, the downsides of manipulated knowledge, of misinformation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the point is those dark sides and downsides are having a lot of impact on the human condition as much as the upsides are. And even the upside to having impact on the human condition, which may turn out to be a bit like climate, uh, like the internal combustion engine, may have long-term consequences that are less than optimal. So we need to be 
more preemptive, more honest, find new partnerships between the different players in technology so that we think about these things in a more constructive way. And it's complicated. It means we go back to another technology that emerged relatively recently, genetic modification. Mm -hmm. in the food chain. You have countries like the US that have been relatively open about it and adopted the technologies reasonably broadly, although there are, there are people that for philosophical and other reasons object to it. And you have countries like my country or the Europeans that for other reasons said, no, we're not going to have that technology because we'll take an extremely precautionary approach up front mm -hmm. to that technology. And now when those technologies might be critical for managing climate change and other issues, societies like mine and the difficulty, well, how do we actually move from a precautionary mindset we had then to a more adaptive mindset now? On the other hand, if we take the internet technologies, we open it up, everybody open it up because the manifest benefits of communication of uh, well, obvious to everybody. And now we're seeing some of the other issues emerging. How do we actually, in a, what is a globalized internet world, how do you actually put some adaptive, or maybe we've gone too far, you know, look at the Christchurch call, which you may or may not know about. You know, we had this terrible terrorist attack in the mosque in Christchurch last mm. year which was live streamed by the terrorists all around the world, a very ugly, ugly video. We, even though there have been meetings of heads of state to say we need to eradicate live streaming of terrorist events and other such horrific events off the media, we can't do it. If you go looking hard enough, you can still find that terrible event on the web. Uh, and so we've got real issues here and it gets complicated, freedom of speech issues versus so forth, which are particular issues in your country, I know. But, but there's some really interesting phenomena here, and I'm particularly interested from a broader point of view. We've talked about individual resilience, but we also got to look at societal resilience. We're social animals. Ingenious starts with the discussion of another social animal, the, the gorilla. We're a social animal. We live in societies, we evolved to live in small groups. Now we're living in large groups and virtual groups, et cetera, et cetera. And we're seeing signs, at least I think we're seeing signs, that societal resilience is under stress. I mean, we're seeing more polarization. We're seeing a loss of trust in democracy, which is all said and done has been one of the umbrellas we've used to maintain resilient societies. Uh, you know, trust surveys and democracy are showing that 70 to 80 percent of people no longer believe that governments can meet their the needs and the aspirations of their of the people, their citizens. Serious issues. We're seeing polarization. We're seeing a loss of civil discourse. I think if you took all the parts, the elements apart, I think if you think about civil discourse. When we were lived in small groups, 100, 120 people, which is what we evolved to live in, civil discourse was critical. And people were probably expelled from the group or murdered or killed if they 
if they were not civil within the group. Mm -hmm. Then we saw the development of religions, which all virtually all religions have something like thou shalt not speak ill of thy neighbor, that within the in-group, you needed to have sociality. Yeah. And then we had the development of city-states uh, and so forth, and then nation-states. And again, things like slander and libel law and rules against obscene and other languages emerged to try and maintain within the society civil discourse. You could disagree, but you had to disagree in a, in a civil way. Right. <laughs> now with Twitter in particular, anonymous, very blunt discourse has turned into anonymous, very often very obscene and nasty discourse. And that is the kind of thing that's happening to society, which ine inevitably polarizes and has led to an increasingly uh, destructive kind of civil of conversation, even in politics, and not just talking about US politics, I think, in general, around the world, we've seen a far more ad hominem, a far more uh, <laughs> less constructive form of debate, uh, attack ads, all sorts of things happen, which 40, 50 years ago, there was still political disagreement, as there should be. Politics is about different values and giving priority to different values. Mm. But it was done in a way that maintained the civility and the integrity of society. And I would suggest that we're, we, that's not assured in the way we are now. That's true. Yeah, a lot of the negative is amplified and then there are things that are made up. But yeah, the negative is definitely because of our psychology of focusing on the negative and multiplying it over the positive. Exactly. It doesn't we look like... That, we know that negative stories spread on, on, the, on social media far easier and far quicker than positive stories. So one of my roles is as president-elect of the International Science Council. And one of the things that we're worried about is how do we deal with misinformation? As you've just mentioned, mm -hmm. we live in a world of misinformation, intentionally manipulated for different reasons, whether it's by advocates or by actors, whether they're non-state actors or political actors, it happens. And we know from studies on the internet that far more information on the internet is not complete and is misleading than most people realize. Add to that the AI-fed news feeds and, and other feeds that people get through Facebook and so forth, the filter bubbles that are created, so you only see what you want to see. And we are in a, spa in a space where how does one deal with the misinformation age is I think one of the major existential challenges we face alongside the other challenges that we all know about. Mm -hmm. This is true. I think about it in terms of the current moment, but also how evolution is working through us for the next level of adaptation that we bring in. One question I have in mind is related well, the to... And there is, sorry to interrupt. No, no, it's all good. Can we keep on adapting? That is actually the question that we leave the book with in many ways is, can we adapt beyond just making ourselves more psychologically resilient? Because the next stage may actually create societies of a nature very different to what they are now, and maybe not, they're not productive societies in the same way. This is true. 
One thing that comes to mind is you mentioned migration in the book and organisms of many types moving to somewhere else that fits them more economically or better that fits their physiological functioning. Do you picture as we start, we used to always push problems here, there, everywhere, but now the globe is one big thing that's connected. Do you picture in the next, let's say, decades, upcoming decades, more migration or quicker migration to quickly adapt to changing landscapes? Well, it's inevitable. I, mean, I live in the South Pacific. We're already thinking a lot in our part of the world about the tragedy of, of sea level rise and climate change on countries like Tuvalu, Kiribati, Fiji, Niue, uh, Tokelau's, uh, Cook Islands, Samoa, Tonga, all of which are facing, and in the case of Kiribati and Tuvalu, the threat is no longer existential. It's now unreal because as the water table, the salinated water table has risen, their ability for food sustainability has been lost. And so there's a lot of thinking in our part of the world around climate change, refugees and migration. And obviously, if one takes some of the predictions that are coming because the world is failing to deal with climate change adequately, we're going to see countries like Bangladesh, Vietnam, uh, you know, Southeast Asian countries face huge migration issues of a level that we have not seen before. Now, can that be stopped? Well, to a certain level, possibly by uh, sea walls in some countries, but it's going to rely fundamentally on the world grappling with this issue of climate change in a serious way, which as yet, sadly, we're not. You picture solutions coming more from one central place or intelligence sphere figures out methods and guides everybody else on the planet for what to do, or it starts springing up everywhere by itself as a response? Well, I think we're going to see, I mean, you know, 50 years ago, if you'd asked me that question, one would have immediately looked to the United States as being a global leader in finding solutions. Sadly, I don't think that's, we can see that as that being the case any longer. What we're seeing is Europe, China, the, lots of small countries around the world, all looking at different aspects of it. But the reality is, if we look at the production side of greenhouse gases, it is a few big countries, China, India, United States, Canada, Australia, and so forth, that produce a lot of the emissions. And they, unfortunately, with the, tend to be countries that have not been proactive in how to reduce emissions. You're seeing lots of smaller countries like New Zealand, which actually makes very little difference to the world's total emissions, taking leadership. Uh, we, we, we're, you know, we have commitments to zero carbon emissions by 2050. And you might say, well, that's a nice thing to say, but what are you going to do about it? But there's a lot of action going on to think about how to change human behavior, how to change our major sources of emissions, which in our case are food production, 55% of our emissions come from agriculture and food production. What can we do to make a more sustainable agricultural path? And that's lots of things from the behavior of individual farmers and following best practice, to thinking about methane inhibitors as drugs, to thinking about changing the forages which we feed animals on, 
to moving to away from animals in the first place to different forms of food production. So there's a lot of things that can be done. And I think what we're seeing is the smaller innovative countries, the Ireland's, the Denmark's, and so forth, putting up their hand to say, we're going to make a major contribution here. And I think that, that they are. But I think at the end of the day, sadly, it still requires the technological superpowers like the United States to be, and I mean, I don't want to jump on you. I mean, because I do think when you go to the level of many states and many cities, there's real leadership being shown in the United States at, the, at, at different levels of, of jurisdiction. So, I mean, I think, and I mean, many academics in the United States, many companies in the United States are doing great things in thinking about new energy solutions and so forth. So there's a lot going on, but it is a far more distributed uh, uh, mm -hmm. approach than before. But I want to, but we do need to think globally because the technologies need to distribute fast, the knowledge needs to distribute fast, and it's not just going to be left to find some magic technological solution in 30 years' time when everything's turned to pretty disastrous situations. That makes sense. One thing I kind of want to follow up to that about small countries and their ability and then return to the original item about evolutionary biology. I've noticed a lot of times when I'm looking at content related to it, Scotland has a solid base and Charles Darwin studied there, I found out recently. Uh, is there a specific... Not long. <laughs> Say it again. Charles Darwin only lasted there for a year or so. Right, right. He went to medical school, hated the sight of blood, so he left. <laughs> yeah. This is true. I noticed it shows up a lot and it's not a large country. Uh, do you notice, are there any specific countries you think of when you think of um, a lot of research put out by a small group of people? Oh, yes. I think Singapore, Israel, Denmark, New Zealand and its niche areas, uh, uh, Finland. I think you can, Switzerland is another example, although Switzerland surrounded by lots of big countries and has and had a long history of innovation. I think that there's no doubt, and I actually led an initiative for the New Zealand government when I was the chief science advisor called the Small Advanced Economies Initiative, which actually pointed out that the small advanced countries, Singapore, Israel, New Zealand, Finland, Denmark, Ireland, Switzerland, etc., have actually kept have punched above their weight for many years. So at the time when the, the share of global GDP generated by big countries like United States and, 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 and the European uh, conglomerate has declined at the expense of the rise of China and the other large middle-income countries, the small countries have kept their share constant. They have continued, they continue to be performing as they always have above average. And if you look at their contribution to the global knowledge of science, obviously they have a much smaller number of scientists. But if you look at how their papers and their production uh, is reflected in various bibliometric measures, they've always done very well. And Denmark and Singapore and Israel would be very good examples of that. I mean, Israel, for instance, produces more innovation and startup companies, I think, that get listed on NASDAQ than any other country than the United States. So, you know, it's, a, it's quite a remarkable performance. There's something about small countries, and it's, it's the aggregation factor. 
we actually the the linkage between the actors is closer. We 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 therefore can collaborate easier. But the other thing is because we're more vulnerable to global stresses, we tend to be more strategic. Our governments tend to be more thinking long term than perhaps the big ones who can withstand things in different ways. So I like to say we're both the canary in the mine. We get we places where we can see things happening quicker but also the headlights for the way ahead, because we can identify solutions, because the, the complication of so many layers of, and so many different actors that you have in a country like the United States or the European Commission is not there when you come to a country like Israel or New Zealand. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, know how to, I mean, I'm not meaning personally, but every New Zealander knows how to get an audience with a member of parliament or even a cabinet minister reasonably easy if they have a case. We're trying to get to see, you know, uh, one of your cabinet ministers would be a very hard thing for an average citizen in, in the United States. It's as simple as that. The distance between actors is smaller. Mm -hmm. I've thought about that concept a lot of times. Companies the same way. If it, Once it gets too large, the layers, everything slows down. That makes sense. It's a nice concept to think about. Now, I always like to close with this right here. If you could put into a couple of sentences a message you would want people to know that is represented by your latest book or your work, what would you tell all people of the earth? I think if we're going to cope well with the rapid changes that we face, be it environmentally, demographically, technologically, or socially, one, we need to think far more about the skills of resilience at the level of individuals, which comes back to early childhood in particular. And secondly, we need to think far more proactively around how to manage new technologies so that we don't just let it be out there and say, oh, hell, we've created a disaster. How do we actually think about it? Not to say we don't innovate, because if we don't innovate, we're dead for other reasons. We're a species that evolved to innovate. And we must celebrate that, but we must learn how to innovate responsibly. And that means in, a, in this very rapid world, we need to be more linked up. We can't think as individuals only, or as individual companies only, or as individual countries only. We need to be more, uh, more linked up. Mm -hmm. Strong connection. This is wonderful. Sir Peter Gluckman, I would like to thank you for having been on episode number 251 of the show to discuss your book and your career. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. That too. And we are out. <laughs>